This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, everyone, and welcome. It is a bittersweet session. It's our last session out of 17 uh, webinars of meeting ever since April of 2020 when COVID started. And it has been amazing to have such an interactive webinar, getting great questions from you, our audience, and uh, having such fantastic knowledge in times of need. Today, we're ending with a bang, focusing on psychedelic-assisted therapy. This is, of course, a time of increasing mental health crises, particularly among youth and young adults. And so it is even more exciting that new treatment modalities are on the horizon. It has been incredibly disappointing with traditional antidepressants and, and other drugs. And so the emergence of psychedelics in the field of mental health or the reemergence, I should say, has, has brought so much hope and interest and hype. And so today I'm bringing you three leading experts in this area so you can really hear where's this field at from them? What do you need to know? How do you find a trial if you're interested? And uh, really you know, dive in a bit both to the science of psychedelic therapy as well as access and equity issues. So with that, I'd like to introduce our three speakers. First, we are so happy to be joined by Sarah Reed, who is the CEO and founder of Minds Eye Health Solutions, a digital mental health treatment company, which includes ketamine therapy. And she has had an important role as a research study therapist in trials of psychedelic therapy at Yale. And she has brought really fresh and new perspectives as a feminist, as someone looking at social equity and racial trauma, and how we're going to address these huge issues in this burgeoning field. Welcome, Sarah. Next, I'd like to introduce Chuck Raison. Uh, Chuck, or maybe I should call you Charles, but he's a friend. <laughs> um, he is one of the most Renaissance researchers I know of the mind and of psychiatric disease. He deeply understands the mind-body connection. He has pioneered both the psychoneuroendocrine and immune pathways of depression and stress and treatments, as well as forging uh, new pathways in understanding treatments that really build on the hormetic stress response, like hyperthermia. He's conducted some of the first trials showing that thermoregulation is a, a treatment path. And so now he's leading, has a very important role in the psychedelic world. Um, first, I should say he's a professor at the uh, University of Madison, Wisconsin, a distinguished chair for Healthy Minds. And he's also the director of clinical translational research for USONA Institute. So he'll tell us more about that important role overseeing national research and funding in this area. Welcome, Chuck. And lastly, I'm so happy to bring you Robin Carhart-Harris. He is a, the leading neuroscientist in psychedelic research, and he comes at this with such rigorous methods and, and multi, multiple methods to really understand the mechanisms, the neural mechanisms, the experience, the biology, and really link these together. He is 
I'm so pleased to say he is now at UCSF. So uh, my, um, to some good fortune and good work on our colleagues at Neuroscape, he has just started a new division of psychedelic research at Neuroscape UCSF. Welcome, Robin. Thank you, Alyssa. Very so happy. why don't we start with you, Robin? We're going to have each um, each of you just talk to us a bit and give us some background on uh, your perspective of where this field is at, where it's going, what people should know. And um, keeping in mind our audiences, uh, we have a good mix, um, including a lot of health professionals. Now, Robin, you have done the hard work of the most rigorous and large-scale clinical trials in this area. And that's probably been the most transformative um, thing to this field. And so um, we, I'd love you to you know, start, start where you'd like, but end with um, the big splash there. <laughs> uh, sure. Well, happy to, and, and I will, that recent publication in the New England Journal of Medicine comparing psilocybin therapy with um, six weeks of a conventional antidepressant drug escitalopram um, but uh, it, perhaps in in another order just starting with the basics we're talking about psychedelics and uh, psychedelic uh, the roots of the term come from ancient Greek psyche for soul or psyche if you use that term and understand it uh, and the other component means to make manifest or to reveal so that's quite an abstract definition, if you can call it a definition, and perhaps a crisper one is to look at the pharmacology of what we call classic psychedelics. And these are compounds like LSD, psilocybin, DMT found in ayahuasca. Um, and they're all direct agonists of a serotonin receptor subtype, the serotonin 2A receptor, heavily expressed in the cortex and particularly hierarchically at the top of the cortex in transmodal association cortex, evolutionarily the most expanded cortex in our species and the cortex that undergoes the most expansion uh, develop, uh, developmentally, if you want. Uh, so that's uh, these are the classic psychedelics. They stimulate that serotonin to a receptor. Then you have kind of quasi psychedelics like MDMA, very powerful compounds in their own right that stimulate the serotonin system more broadly. And there are some indirect effects on the 2A receptor, but also other serotonin and, and other neuromodulator uh, receptors. And if we uh, are getting excited about psychedelics, one of the reasons perhaps is that they suggest, the evidence suggests that they may have a transdiagnostic potential. They may target a common denominator, if you want, to psychological suffering. And uh, how they may rectify this common space is perhaps through their ability to enhance plasticity, probably cortical plasticity specifically. Plasticity, the most simple dictionary definition, you could say, is the ability to change or the ability to be shaped or molded. So if they're promoting that, we talk about psychedelic therapy, and the, there's a big clue there in the name that we use psychedelics in clinical research um, as a combination treatment. We don't just give the drug. All of the, the wealth of the evidence is suggesting, uh, granted it's all involved manipulation of the delivery of the drug in a positive way, in a supportive way with psychological preparation, 
I think across the board, music listening during these sessions and then psychological integration afterwards. So that's not just giving a drug that's, you know, curating this experience. So psychedelic therapy is a combination treatment. We think it's about harnessing that drug induced uh, enhancement of cortical plasticity and channeling it in a particular way, in a therapeutic way. And that common denominator, it could be how, you know, young plastic brains and so on become set in pathological ways and perhaps certain habits of mind and behavior become stamped in and they're unhealthy, whether they're negative cognitive biases in depression or uh, uh, addictions, specific addictions or anxieties or ways of looking at yourself in terms of, say, body disorders, image disorders, such as anorexia, body dysmorphic disorder. So if you can enhance plasticity, the ability to change and then utilize and exploit that opportunity, that window of of opportunity, and then channel it in a particular way, that's the essence, I would say, of of psychedelic therapy. And uh, if we now begin to start thinking about that recent trial that we did, um, part of the motivation there in making a conventional drug treatment, the active comparator arm, was a sense that maybe there, first of all, is a different mechanism mechanism of action with psychedelic therapy, specifically psilocybin therapy. We used two high-dose treatment sessions in this trial. Um, And uh, we believe, based on observations and interviewing with our patients from a previous trial in treatment-resistant depression, that the psilocybin um, uh, had a different effect on um, on one's ability to sit with emotion, to release emotion, and to um, work through um, personal issues, um, difficult memories and emotions, um, process them, have insight about their etiology, how they came about. Um, And this sort of epistemic process, this learning process, and in many ways, a relearning process, relearning their relationship with themselves and others and beyond, um, seem to be catalyzed by, by the drug in that therapeutic container. And in the, in the TRD trial, in interviews, people were saying that conventional drug treatments work very differently. And of course, there's other literature speaking to, to this, that uh, as my um, former mentor, David Nutt, would say of SSRIs, they incubate against stress. They help you get by, um, but they probably don't, they're not as effective in terms of getting to root causes and that kind of you know, profound transformation that you can see with psychedelic therapy. So this, this, you know, was borne out in the results of that trial, that if we look particularly at positive, effective processing, things like um, anhedonia scores, the ability to, to experience pleasure again, work and social functioning, I encourage people to look up that paper but specifically look in, look at the data and look at the supplementary appendix where there's some really important data on this kind of thing. Look at the profile of the increase in well-being 
we had a highly validated measure of well-being in there, but we also had a measure of flourishing, both marked increases with psilocybin therapy and uh, much more robust increases with the psilocybin than with the SSRI. Um, so do look at those data. Other naturalistic work that we've done has also supported this multifaceted increase in well-being that you see, even in healthy volunteers. Sure, there's ceiling effects sometimes, but uh, look up a paper from uh, Kocharova et al. I'm the senior author on that. That's in Frontiers in Psychiatry. Uh, this comprehensive uh, improvements in well-being in a very general population uh, a few hundred people in this prospective survey uh, approach that we took. Um, and also look up, in fact, that was a paper um, reporting on the transdiagnostic uh, idea, um, but it's very relevant. And then Kerry Manns, M-A-N-S, is the that comprehensive well-being paper. So there were limitations to that trial, uh, the New England Journal of Medicine one, the demographics, it was a kind of homogenous sample. Perhaps we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go on, but that gives you a flavor of some of our research, some of the promise that we're seeing with psilocybin therapy specifically, um, but not exclusively in the treatment of mental illness. Thank you so much, Robin. That was an amazing summary of, uh, you know, a huge body of work. And it is, there's so much there in the, um, some of the papers Robin mentioned, we'll post those on our website. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's so exciting that change can happen so quickly, that people can feel more of that kind of eudaimonia and positive affect where we don't get that. We get more of a numbing from the antidepressants. What is um, what is just the drug alone do? You know, it kind of prepares for plasticity, but what role, how important is the therapy and quality therapy in this, in shaping healing? Well, we assume it's essential uh, and we can speak to that, to evidence supporting that only indirectly, really. So, for example, uh, people's ratings of the quality of the experience they have seem to be predictive of the therapeutic outcomes. Some of the setting factors, if you look at our naturalistic research, having a structured setting seems to be uh, especially useful for people having a therapeutic setting as opposed to some kind of you know, spontaneous, impulsive use of a psychedelic, say, at a party. Uh, so we assume it's very important. Some of the research I plan at UCSF will try and address this in a more formal, uh, systematic way. And I think that will be important for the field. Yes. Thank you so much. We will come back to you when we have our Q&A. Chuck, we would love to hear from you how you got into this, what your role is overseeing research in this area, and your you know view of where this field is going, the challenges and the opportunities. Sure. Well, yeah, thanks. Melissa. So as you know, I mean, you said it, I have this long-term interest in trying to find novel ways to treat depression, especially, especially ways that don't require that a drug sit on the brain's receptors constantly, because we know with all these sorts of agents, they, they produce largely unwanted secondary changes. And so, uh, you know, I've been long interested in whether there aren't more like, like targeted time-limited treatments produce effects in the brain and body that are then self-sustaining. So, you know, psilocybin's in the, the body for six, seven hours, and yet people many times feel better for months afterwards. Well, there's not an ongoing drug pushing on the receptors. To explain that, so obviously what it suggests is that these are agents that then set in motion 
processes to become at least somewhat self-sustaining in the body and brain. And, and I think actually that this is going to be the optimal future uh, when we can do it of mental health treatments, because it'll avoid the challenges that come with always taking a drug and then the brain body complex becoming reliant on that drug. Now, sometimes that is the best outcome is far better than being devastated by a major mental illness. But again, if, if we can find ways to build up a sort of self-sustaining resilience within the person's own biology, I think that that is going to be one of the really exciting ways forward. And of course, this is one of the reasons I got into psychedelics. I, I had a, many of the things I've looked at are actually what I might call ancient practices. You mentioned the hyperthermia, uh, you know, heat's been used for thousands of years around the world as a healing modality. And it turns out it has very uh, rather potent and rapid antidepressant effects, but we're talking about psychedelics today. And, and so let me give a more general sense. So Robin uh, is of all people in the world, one of the people I most envy because he gets to do all this wonderful fun stuff. My, my role in this space um, is largely uh, more pragmatic. So one of the, the, the hats I wear is, as you mentioned, as Director of Clinical and Translational Research for USONA Institute, which is a nonprofit medical research organization founded in, in 2015 with the goal of conducting the type of studies that allow these agents, if the studies are successful, to get FDA approval as treatments, which you know, is a pretty steep hill because these agents you know, have been illegal for quite a while. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting, these agents do enhance diagnostic signals. Um, if you look, there were a number of, there were like a thousand studies done back in the 1960s, looking at the potential of these agents for therapeutic uses. And two things that stood out were they seemed to help people with substance abuse, especially alcohol. And they also seemed to help people um, that were dying deal with fear around death. And so when the field got kicked up again around the beginning of the 21st century, um, and, and researchers began to look at things um, when they turned to exploring, um, well, what kind of indications should we look at if we want to try to get FDA approval? Um, the first uh, several were those. So there were thousands uh, in substance abuse suggesting drinking or stop smoking or stop doing drugs. The other area where people returned to was looking at um, depression and anxiety in the context of mortality, in this case, uh, cancer. And the field really blew wide open um, in 2015, 2016, when two studies were published, one from Johns Hopkins, one from NYU, showing that a single treatment with a high dose of psilocybin produced profound reductions in depressive and anxious symptoms. And these reductions in that population lasted for at least six months. And in some people now, we know for up to five years. That Those studies uh, were really instrumental in launching what has become now a very active field of, of folks that are trying to do studies that, uh, that meet FDA standards. So in, in particular, our work at USONA is focused on um, a single-dose, high-dose psilocybin for the treatment of major depression. We, it's interesting, we initially actually wanted to go into the cancer space. And one of the challenges that these agents are gonna face uh, is that they are, we're always trying to fit a, a round peg into a square hole. And the FDA has very, very sort of strict guideline boxes for the kind of things they can give an indication for. And they didn't have a way, and I, I still don't think actually they have a way of giving approval for, for say demoralization or fear of death in the context of cancer. 
you know, you have to go for something like major depression, which has a code. And if you're going to go for major depression and cancer, the FDA wants to see that, you know, well, what's so special about cancer? We'd want to know whether it works for major depression in general. And so we and others have taken that tack at looking at things like major depressive disorder or treatment-resistant depression. And so now there are active studies on the way we are in the midst of a phase two study looking at uh, psilocybin versus placebo for the treatment of regular major depression. So you don't have to be you know, resistant to drugs to be uh, in the study that we're conducting. Compass Pathways, which is a commercial entity, has finished, we don't know the results yet, but finished a large phase two study looking specifically at treatment resistant depression. Um, the data for that hopefully will be out by the end of the year. Um, there are active studies going on looking at um, uh, psilocybin in particular for the treatment of substance use disorders. And it's public knowledge now that Matthew Johnson and colleagues at a couple of other universities have received what is really the first large National Institute of Health grant to look at psilocybin treatment for smoking cessation. There's, there's very powerful preliminary data suggesting that uh, a couple of treatments uh, might have these long-term effects in helping people quit smoking. So the field is alive and active, and, and I hope in our question and answer we'll be able to hit upon what are some of the challenges of trying to take this treatment, which, as Robin said, has thus far been looked at as a, a marriage of pharmacology with, with psychotherapy. How do you take that and put it into this very, very rigid FDA-mandated type um, a buzzsaw, meat grinder, I call it what you want, but the, the way that we have to run studies of antidepressant agents, you know, there's a lot of, of interesting tension there. The other thing we might talk about um, is that there's going to be some really interesting tension around how these agents are commercialized. So when we started, when USONA started, there was a couple of nonprofits. This was looked at as a sort of a, as mercy work. These were seen as orphan drugs that had been around for a long time that would be difficult to get approval for because of the stigma. I, I don't think any of us in the field at that time foresaw that now, you know, five or six years later, at last count, there's at least 100 commercial entities in this space working on all sorts of agents um, with all sorts of interests. So there are there are um, commercial entities that are very interested in combining these agents with psychotherapy, like MAPS, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. It's been working on MDMA for, for PTSD, clearly sees these agents as, as ways to augment and optimize psychotherapy. There are other uh, entities in this field that are actively trying to figure out how to get rid of the psychotherapy. And then there are entities in this field that are very, uh, that are very committed to trying to find agents that they can that they can build off of psychedelics that are not psychedelics. So there's one of the great fantasies I think of the pharmacologic world is that that we can find agents that will have all the antidepressant, all the anti-substance abuse benefits of psychedelics, but they won't produce a psychedelic experience. So uh, these are really really important uh, questions. Um, so hopefully that gives a little bit of an overview. Yeah, that's a, a wonderful picture of this landscape and what we can, you know, see and we can read about it in the New York Times is that this this is an explosion of research. You probably can't take enough investment money in this. I mean, everyone wants to invest hundreds of millions, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes. And so is there, you know, clearly the growth is is going to be helpful, but there's always these downsides. And I know you worry, Chuck, about where this is going and, you know, what, 
<laughs> what would you, um, do you want to just give us a picture of, you know, your in five years where we could be if things go really well and um, vice versa? Yeah. Well, so if things go really well in five years, uh, there will be an FDA approval for at least a couple of these agents administered responsibly with ways of getting them out into diverse underserved populations, as well as the largely white upper middle class or upper class folks that, um, you know, have sort of been connected with these agents. Um, Now, one of the things I worry about in five years is that there's going to be a backlash against these agents. And the backlash is going to come from the fact that we've over-idealized them. The hype for these agents now as as these salvational um, elements worries me more than anything else. You know, I've watched fads come and go in my lifetime in the U.S. especially. And, you know, as a culture, we get obsessed with, oh, this is going to be the answer. And then, you know, it doesn't save us from our misery entirely. And then people sour on it. They go looking for something else. So I, I worry about the hype right now that this field is experiencing, because I do believe these agents are going to be hugely useful. I think they're going to be challenging. I don't think they're going to be simple pharmacologic cures, but I think they're going to be valuable. But they're not going to solve the world's problems. I don't personally think. And I worry that people are expecting that of them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. We will come back to that. Okay. Welcome, Sarah. I just can't wait to hear you talk. You're one of the few voices in this very busy field um, that's actually pointing out the, the, you know, the social inequities and the potential that psychedelics can have for helping with, you know, these great health disparities we have in mental health for people who have been uh, targeted. I, I, I love, instead of saying vulnerable groups or BIPOC, I love the new way of just pointing out um, people who have been disadvantaged socially, structurally. And I think one of the, one of the themes that we have addressed in our webinar, um, particularly early on is we're just starting to understand. um, And I mean, white people, (laughs) the, the intergenerational trauma and the structural racism in every moment and how that affects black people. And so I think, Thinking about racial trauma, racial triggering is already such an important new area. And now you're taking this to psychedelic therapy. And, you know, what have you seen and in your um, experience and your view of the field, how much are um, diverse samples involved? And, and we just would love to hear about your personal experience as well. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for that kind introduction and Shout outs to all the listeners who are live on the call today, as well as the future listeners who will be watching the playback. I um, am very honored to be here and to be able to share part of my story with you all today. So with that said, I'd like to spend my time talking about my experience both as a therapist and as a participant in this work. And although a newbie in the field, there are some really important findings that I'd like to share. So I'll start with my work as a therapist. So my work um, goes back to really maybe the end of 2016, where um, MAPS or the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies approached my um, former mentor, former boss, um, Dr. Monica Williams, about um, MDMA therapy for PTSD. 
um, and MAP specifically contacted Dr. Williams um, to help them diversify their participant pool because their participant pool was overwhelmingly white in the MDMA therapy for PTSD clinical trials. And when I say um, diversify the participant pool, I'm specifically talking about um, racially diversify um, the pool. So uh, our site um, completed or started the MAPS therapist training and became a MAPS sponsored site for the phase two clinical trials at UConn Health Center. And our site was focused on recruiting folks of color and providing them with a culturally informed therapeutic experience. And it wasn't until that we got, really got in the research work that um, we became aware of a few limitations um, in the protocol as it, as it was. So particularly with um, the recruitment strategies, we had to um, re- rework the recruitment strategies to make them more relevant and sensitive to the populations that we were trying to serve. Um, and of course, this is with the approval from IRBs, the approval from MAPS. And we also made adjustments to the informed consent form just to make it, again, relevant and sensitive to the needs of BIPOC communities. And for folks who want to learn more about specifically um, the the things that we did to make the research more culturally informed, I will share a link to one of our papers at the end of my segment. So, okay, we've got culturally informed research design as one limitation, and we've also got um, a limitation um, in my perspective of culturally responsible training or culturally um, responsible care as it relates to therapist training. So I wanna first define what I mean by culturally responsible care. Um, and so for me, culturally responsible care is a practice. It's an attunement to the ways social factors like race, gender, ability, income, education. It's how all of these social factors impact the way symptoms present, um, as well as the outcomes that you have in treatment. For example, research shows that BIPOC communities appear more likely to express psychological distress through bodily symptoms for two reasons. One, there is a higher level of stigma associated with mental illness, so discussing physical symptoms is more socially acceptable. And two, there's less of a distinction between mind and body among these groups. So how does that translate into practice? Well, one way that it can translate into practice is through um, screening, through the, through the screening and assessment period, therapists, researchers can be more attuned to the variety of ways symptoms can present in um, these populations. Another piece that I want to mention about culturally responsible care um, is that culturally responsible care isn't limited to or through a racialized lens. It can also be um, included, especially in psychedelic therapy, things like um, a person's experience with psychedelic medicines prior to coming into psychedelic therapy. So, for example, there are some folks who 
learned about the treatment or interested in the treatment and haven't had psychedelics before, haven't experienced psychedelics before. So to me, part of culturally responsible care is attuning to that nuance of, okay, how does the preparatory period look different for someone who hasn't had any experiences with psychedelics versus someone who maybe identifies as a psychonaut and has had a lot of experiences with psychedelics? Another component of culturally responsible care is the element of spirit or spirit-based work. So what I mean by this is, um, let's say um, you've got a participant in a clinical trial who um, is having a very spiritual experience in one of their dosing sessions. And let's say you've got a therapist who's either an atheist or who doesn't Um, prescribe or subscribe to that particular spiritual practice. Well, what does culturally responsible care look like um, in that particular setting? Because the reality is that if therapists aren't culturally attuned or just aren't attuned to these nuances in treatment, they can harm folks unintentionally um, and um, it can lead to um, really negative clinical outcomes like unnecessary suicidality. Okay, so moving on to my experience as a participant. So a few years ago, I um, had the opportunity to enroll in a clinical trial um, or to take MDMA in a one-time clinical setting as part of the MAPS therapist training. And it was important for me to... um, to enroll in that clinical trial because as a Black woman, as a therapist, I who was going to be treating um, folks from um, racialized communities, I wanted to experience firsthand um, what it was like to um, just get a, um, just a snippet of um, this, um, this drug-assisted treatment as a participant. So I... Um, in this particular protocol, I got to, I had to go through a screening period, um, a preparatory period. I had dosing sessions, two dosing sessions. One was with um, the active MDMA, one was with placebo, and I also had integration sessions as well. And in the interest of time, I'm only going to talk about um, the session that I had with um the active session with MDMA therapy. And to help um illustrate um, the the type of experience or the type of profound experience I had, I I wanted to share a little bit of a story that I wrote um, that really kind of describes my experience of what it was like um, going through that dosing session. Also, maybe I want to give a quick trigger warning um, just in case um, folks um, are just to just to keep folks or, or make folks aware. So here we go. I feel like I'm dying, but it's okay. I say with a smile on my face. As I lie on the couch with two therapists by my side, I lift up my eyeshades, constantly checking the clock trying to follow my ascend, that is, trying to figure out the moment when the ordinary becomes the non-ordinary. And I was able to at first, but then there was a moment where time sped up, and it felt like my mind, body, and spirit were merging with the medicine. 
and I'm observing the transformation for a bit. You know, a little disconnected from the experience. But soon enough, the drug sneaks past my mind's defenses, past my reflexive tendency towards control and precision, and catapults me to a place of dissolution. An undoing of false narratives I have picked up and internalized about myself. A release of the criticism that weighed me down and distorted my understanding of myself. An unmasking that was necessary for the journey. And I let the music and medicine carry me away. And shortly thereafter, my deceased grandmother appears. Imparting her wisdom, not only for me, but for my mother, we shared a beautiful yet brief moment. Tears of love filled my face and joy filled my heart. She carried me to a place I knew existed but never seen. A place that felt so familiar but so distant. I had traveled to the essence of the universe into a space of divinity. And I finally had a place where I belonged. And for the first time in my adult life, I felt free. Me, a young black woman free. No longer bound by the constraints of my political realities, like my race or my gender. I was part of this enormous whole, a place that had no beginning or end, where there was no separation from love. A place I always knew existed but felt so distant from. I call that place home. Now, with the interest of time, I can't share the totality of um, what my experience was like, but I'll um, share a link at the end of my talk again um, to a paper that I wrote with um, some incredible colleagues, shouts to Jamila George and Dr. Monica Williams about our experiences as um, three black women and therapists who um, engaged in this um, MT1 um, therapeutic experience. But to maybe um, kind of close the, um, the story to that experience, um, so in the beginning, I was really kind of feeling the sense of liberation um, and really feeling the sense of connectedness. But um, after some time had passed, my body kind of really began to slow down and I had to really grapple with um, things like racialized trauma in a way that I had never um, grappled with before in my life because that dissolution I experienced um, also dissolved um, the defenses that um, that I knew um, or the defenses that I had that helped me navigate the only world that I knew um, that really kept me from um, really experiencing that pain of racialized trauma. So um, although um, the experience was um, really opening and liberating in the beginning, um, I was met with um, some racialized trauma that really had to be um, attended to. Now, I'll end my segment by talking about my visions of um, the future of psychedelic therapy. Um, and so when I envision the future of psychedelic therapy or psychedelic medicine, I think of real community building between both personal experts and professional experts, because the reality is that the field of psychedelic therapy would not exist without the wisdom and practices from Black and Indigenous communities. So how can we all work together to do the healing work? And as psychedelic therapy goes mainstream, more people are becoming curious about the potential of this medicine work 
and they're trying it out on their own. So you've got documentaries coming out. You've got psychedelic therapy being mentioned in sitcoms and other forms of media. Um, And folks are curious. Um, They're already, um, or at least I'll share a quick example of um, there was someone who um, was interested in ketamine therapy treatment. And I um, shared what the treatment would be like, as well as the process that they would go through in treatment, as well as the cost. And this person was like, yeah, so I can't afford um, this type of treatment. What do I do? And I think that's the reality of where we are in this field is that as psychedelics continue to go mainstream, how are we um, making psychedelic therapies safe for folks who want to engage in this healing work? Because um, although, of course, there might be some people who want the treatment but can't afford the treatment, there are also going to be some people who want to engage in the healing work, but they don't want to do it in a medicalized context. So to me... Um, as a field, as a community, I think it's important to really build a multi-sector alliance with folks in drug policy, with folks in harm reduction, um, with researchers in the field to really kind of come together to make this type of treatment as safe as possible for those who want to engage. And with that, I will pause here and thank you all for listening. And I look forward to um, the Q&A section. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. And especially for sharing your personal experience, something that data can never share, but that narrative and you're so beautifully describing that feeling of home and liberation is, you know, is incredible. It's a small window in for people. And, you know, one of the, one of the most amazing things about this field is that it's, it is experiential. And it's so hard with words to describe the transformation people are having. So we'll have a scale, you know, mystical experiences. And yes, that's an important scale, but the, um, you know, the narrative of seeing, you know, what true comfort feels like and then coming back to all of the, you know, racialized identities. And it's, it's, um, I think so there's so much uh, we can learn from this type of therapy. And so my question for you is, you know, healing racialized trauma is, is already such a difficult field at UCSF. We don't have enough providers of color for all of you know, the people who would prefer a provider from the same race or ethnic background. And I'm just wondering, is that, you know, what are your recommendations for, um, for how to provide culturally sensitive care? And is it, you know, does it need to be from some, someone of the same race or ethnicity? Yeah, so when I think about um, treating racial trauma with psychedelics, I think about, um, and to do it in safe ways, I think about the preparatory period and how instrumental the preparatory period is in really creating that container of safety where someone can um, um, feel safe enough to go um, to the depths of their trauma. Because one thing, Um, that I've learned and continuing to learn in this field is that the therapists that you have absolutely play a critical role in how deep you can go in your experience or the territory that you explore in your experience. So to me, to really talk about culturally responsible care, I could spend a whole day, (laughs) um, maybe even a whole week to talk about what it really means to provide that type of care. 
Um, but I think what I'll mention now is that it's important for um, therapists to be educated and continue that education process, because especially with um, with COVID, the hypervisibility of Black murders like Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Floyd there's been a lot of um, folks that are like, oh, my gosh, like, what can I do? I need to educate. I need to inform myself. And that is a great start. And my um, hope is that folks don't just stop, you know, um, that learning just because, you know, uh, we're not in, the, in that same year anymore, that it's really a practice. Culturally responsible care, culturally informed care is a practice. It's not something that you can just attend a, web, a webinar and like, here are 10 things to be, you know, sir, culturally. Get all done. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. Let me bring uh, back um, Chuck and Robin. And so um, the, we can have some discussion. Um, that was absolutely beautiful. And there's comments for you in the chat, Sarah, people's appreciation. So, and we have a lot of comments. And so before I jump into any specific question, um, I just want to give you guys a chance to um, respond to each other. i just make a comment that, you know, it's interesting, Sarah, that the need to get more diversity into these populations is really intense. You know, I mean, FDA has signaled that they, they may make this a criteria on which they'll judge the acceptance, the approval of these agents or not, um, that just just having, you know, study populations that are 90%, you know, white, non-Hispanic is going to be, at the end of the day, a very pragmatic issue for these agents getting approved um, for use. So it, it even down in, into the very, you know, basic economics of it, this is just a huge, you know, and maybe this is a place where psychedelics can play another role for the good is to really you know, sort of highlight these uh, these challenges and equities in ways that that they have to be dealt with for things to move forward. And so I think it's, it, for many of us, I think it's become a central issue in the field. Mm. Yeah, I definitely appreciated um, what you had shared, Robin, um, about the relearning process that happens um, post, um, post-treatment experience. And I was reminded of... Um, a participant who had talked about like, yes, like I've, you know, healed from my trauma and this is all great, but like, who am I now that I um, experienced life throughout this trauma lens? And um, for this participant, it was really about um, building a tribe um, and really experiencing the world in a very different way and finding the people to help support that. So I appreciated that. And that comment um, just reminded me of that experience. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, there's so many. Um, you know, if psychedelics are, are you know soul revealing, then there's there's what an opportunity to you know better understand ourselves and our blind spots with with things like race and um, and also you know the community element is uh, is another opportunity space with mixed groups a colleague of mine at um at uh, imperial if i can still say i'm of imperial uh, it's doing fantastic work looking at um the uh, um conflict in the middle east between palestinians and israelis and um has published on um mixed groups of uh Arabs and Jews drinking ayahuasca together in the Middle East and is is following up that work now. That's Leo Roseman and working with Matt on that. And, you know, and these this uh, 
phenomenon of communitas as well, a sense of shared humanity is something that um, is very relevant here. And yeah, something there's something there. And so I, I'm mindful also, Chuck, of the, uh, that danger of psychedelics will save the world, you know, kind of <laughs> myth. <laughs> as Leo says, it's, you know, it's what you do. It's what you do with them. And I guess that's where our responsibility lies. There, there's some sort of just innocence in the revelation, but then there's some power in in the plasticity, I suppose, that it be used responsibly. And uh, yeah, this is where we find ourselves. Well, it it brings up another question. Um, this is from Gabby Leanne Ages, who's a psychedelic uh, therapy researcher at UCSF. And um, she would love to hear from all of you about comparing, you know, the sterile research trials, which is what we, we need for, you know, approval, legalization, to um, administering it in with all of the rituals in traditional settings with shamanic or group elements. And Robin, you mentioned communitas factors. So you might want to describe what you have you've um, found so far in terms of intersubjective components? We did find that uh, experiences of communitas, and, and this is published, I think Hannes Kettner is the first author on this, uh, was a major predictor um, of improvements in mental health and specifically improvements in well-being, you know, being mindful of, of the nature of this series. Um, so it's a major vehicle towards positive mental health changes, this sense of shared experience. And those were data from psychedelic retreats, specifically, mostly um, mushroom retreats, actually, or truffles, um, and a, a smaller proportion being ayahuasca. Um, yeah, so um, we can from that imagine that there's something in the ritual uh i think ritual shaping and and riding on top of the plasticity that the, that the drug is doing on, on a biological level and shaping the direction of things and these trials i i'd be ashamed to call it the the setting that we've curated in our trials sterile i suppose we come into clinical research settings and try and change that sterility um, and make it softer and warmer and more inviting. But I, I get the point. I suppose there's elements of, of perhaps heritage that are brought in, but then um, they're different, aren't they? You know, we don't have flower wa water puffing into the air or, or the guides singing Icaros, you know, so there's some important differences. Yeah. Thank you. Fabulous answer. Sarah or Chuck, did you want to comment on that? Well, I mean, I just, you know, it's really interesting already what, what, what we are doing, where we have this sort of combination of psychotherapy with a pharmacologic agent, it's just pushing the boundaries of, uh, of, of drug development. I, 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 it, it's been such a lesson in, for me, um, realizing how rigid, how set our examination strategy have been for antidepressant modalities, pharmacologic antidepressant modalities. And the FDA, it's been this fascinating process to watch them evolve, evolve, evolve 
as they began to think, well, shoot, I didn't, we didn't think of that. Oh, was it therapy? Is it medicine? How, do we, do we, do we approve therapy? How do we, you know? Um, so that it, it's, it's, you know, just down in these sort of trenches where the approval will or will not happen. Just, you know, as sterile as the approaches are compared to the far more elaborated ritual ways that these agents are used, you know, um, traditionally, it's already, it's just, it's really wild. And as I've said before, there are very, very powerful forces of foot interested in trying to strip away the remainder of all the things that Robin was talking about. So, you know, I mean, so there are definitely folks who are very interested in trying to get down to, you know, what is the least common denominator pharmacologic approach of clearing out as much of the remainder as possible. So I, you know, this is, it's just amazing, but it also, I would say that, you know, if these agents can get through that narrow pass of this FDA process, the FDA trials are the doorway to the room. Uh, once they're through the door, all sorts of amazing things will happen. There, there's a lot of questions about, can I do this if I'm on antidepressants or if I have this health condition? And what about microdosing um, instead of high doses? Um, and then, you know, and then lastly, there's a question of, of where, where do I go? So I'll, I'll just answer the where do I go really quickly for legal treatment. Um, clinicaltrials.gov. Chuck has pointed out that's pretty much the only place you can kind of search for and find trials on different psychedelic therapies. Um, but any opinions on how um, how this is, how we should think about microdosing versus uh, high dose, you know, single or triple exposure? Robin, you did the study. Well, I would say, wait, we, you know, people need to wait for some evidence to support it because it's a bit it's a bit thin a lot of anecdotes and uh, media articles and uh, hype around microdosing but very little compelling evidence actually uh, the latest evidence we did a study inviting people to do their own uh, blinding procedure placebos versus capsules containing a, a microdose and found that if you got a placebo and you thought it was a microdose you did as well as if you actually got a microdose so the expectancy the placebo effect if you want to call it that or the positive expectancy was driving the majority of the positive outcome there with microdosing so don't underestimate the power of the placebo effect and maybe it's accounting for a lot with microdosing I also just want to um, mention, um, in addition to clinicaltrials.gov, that um, the FDA um, recently approved the expanded access program for MDMA therapy for PTSD. So for folks who are interested um, in um, learning more about that um, program to, um, to follow MAPS and join their listserv and they can stay up to date on what sites are going to be expanded access sites and um, all kinds of things related to that treatment. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, I think that is a, a great place to end. I have some wrap-up comments from our um, almost two years together. Um, but I, I just wanted to say this is such a, a special time to hear from all three of you. And there's so, there's so much to learn. And you've taught us so much. It's been a very rich session. I just can't wait to um, you know, read these studies as they unfold. And um, I know, Sarah, you're going to have a, a big influence on the field. A lot of people are talking about um, training and, you know, this is all going to be a, another big industry of people wanting to get into this field early on and do um, train to be therapists in this area. And, you know, I think the mindfulness and meditation field is only just now 
um, trying to train more um, BIPOC practitioners. It's been such a, you know, kind of siloed elitist field. And um, with that, I believe we are done. Thank you so much, Chuck, Robin, and Sarah. It's been such a pleasure to, to learn from you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.